Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Stephen Hitchings on the topic, AIDS and the Culture of Death. This October 2010 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Stephen Hitchings is a science teacher based in the Archdiocese of Sydney. Thank you, Ahmed. Okay, um, I'm sure you're all familiar with the quote from St. John's Gospel at the Last Supper when our Lord is speaking to the Apostles and he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas, rather confused, asked him, but Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? And Jesus gave the famous answer, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. Now, I don't know what Thomas made of that. I imagine he was probably a bit confused. But it's one of the great defining moments of the, of the Gospel, I think, because our Lord was defining himself, what he is, who he is, and his mission. And he was also defining a way in which we can recognise him in the world. The way to the Father, represented by our Lord, is always associated with the truth and the life. And conversely, the way that leads away from him the way of the world, in the worst sense of the term that our Lord used it, is the way of lies and death. I don't think anyone ever explained that more clearly than Pope John Paul II in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, where he spoke of the great terms of the culture of life, representing all that is of Christ, all that follows Christ, and the culture of death, which is the way of the modern world, the way of the sexual revolution. What, is, what passes for normal in today's society. And Pope John Paul uh, used this term, he explained this term, which has, has become almost a cliche these days, but uh, he explained that, that all the, the things that, that are associated with, with the modern, modern outlook, the modern understanding, things like contraception, abortion, um, free premarital sex, all these sorts of things which people are, are, are believing are, are life-affirming are actually things which lead directly to death. And there is a direct path from contraception, for example, to abortion, to euthanasia, to destructive embryo, embryonic stem cell research, etc. Now, I'll come back to that in a while. I just want to start off with a very brief biology lesson. <coughs> um, one of the great possibly one of the greatest discoveries, scientific discoveries of the 19th century was that we're not alone. And this man here, Louis Pasteur, who was one of the greatest Catholic scientists of, of modern century, certainly, possibly of all time, uh, was, was possibly the greatest contributor to that. He developed what was known as the, the germ theory. And uh, he discovered many, many kinds of microorganisms that were responsible for various diseases, for decay, for um, fermentation, for a variety of processes. And he opened our eyes, basically opened the eyes of the world to this un previously unseen world that was there under the microscope waiting to be discovered. And to the modern realisation that we are, not only are we not alone, but we are outnumbered, literally trillions to one. That there is, even in our own bodies, um, the, of this, you know, your, our own bodies are made up of cells. In fact, it's been estimated there are possibly 200, 300, 400 trillion cells in our body. But the incredible thing is that only perhaps 90% of these, possibly less than, possibly more than 90%, are not our cells. Our own cells are maybe 5 to 10% of these. The others are all invaders. Uh, and and the realization that. For the whole of human history, we've been at war, and without even knowing that we were at war, and without knowing that we had an opposition and who that opposition was, that all these microorganisms, these bacteria, viruses, protozoans, fungi, etc., outnumber us by these vast numbers, and we've been trying to fight against them, and they've been basically winning. Fortunately, we have our own army to defend us, that's our immune system, but our army not only has to defend us against all the foreign invaders, but also has to defend us against revolution from within, because we are constantly being turned on by our own cells, 
which have a tendency to turn cancerous and attack our bodies. Now, as a result of Pasteur's work and the work of Robert Koch and various others, um, and who, who developed a number of vaccines and other treatments and uh, led the way for, to antiseptic surgery and, and antiseptic practices generally, and then the discovery of the first um, antibiotic, penicillin, in 1928 by Alexander Fleming, it looked as if we were, for the first time in history, actually starting to win this war. And then there were great campaigns against malaria and against smallpox. The campaign against smallpox was completely successful, wiped it off the face of the earth. Uh, the campaign against malaria, unfortunately, was less successful. But then in around about the 1960s or so, it all started to go wrong. And the malaria bugs were becoming immune to the treatments against them. And the mosquitoes that carried the malaria were also becoming immune. And new viruses were being discovered. Horrible viruses like Ebola found in Africa, which is about 90% fatal and can reduce the, the, the organs of, of, of the victim to virtually a soup in a matter of days. New cancers came on the scene. Um, and then antibiotic resistant bacteria, the so-called superbugs, which are one of the biggest problems at the moment. We're now returning to the stage before antibiotics kept us so free from these bacteria. Sexually transmitted diseases went to an enormous upsurge riding on the flood tide of the sexual revolution. An estimated 330 million new cases of sexually transmitted diseases every year, according to the World Health Organization. That's a third of a billion new sexually transmitted diseases every year. And then something that may have been even more serious than the rest of them. Between the years of 1979 and 1981 in the United States, principally in New York and San Francisco, doctors discovered 26 cases of an exceptionally rare form of cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma, which had previously only ever been seen in elderly men of Mediterranean or Jewish origin. And yet these are all young men, all young American men. They also found five cases of an even rarer form of pneumonia, which is almost unknown. And the thing that linked them was that all 31 of these people were all homosexuals. So there was obviously some link there. Um, in 1983, uh, Dr. Luc Montagnier of the Pasteur Institute in Paris isolated what he believed was the virus responsible for this this scourge, um, AIDS as it has come to be known. Uh, and then the next year, Dr. Robert Gallo in the United States isolated the same virus and he confirmed uh, more convincingly that this was the, the virus that was responsible for this new syndrome. The virus became known eventually as HIV, went through a few names before that. And that's a picture of what the HIV virus looks like. It looks a rather formidable sort of thing. It's got all those little outgrowths there. They're actually receptors that it uses to ident identify certain cells in our bodies, the ones that it reacts with, particularly what we call the, the um, a variety of T cells, especially the T helper cells and also the, the macrophages, two possibly the most important cells in our immune system. Uh, Dr. Gallo uh, made an unfortunate prediction at the time he said, we hope to have a vaccine ready for testing in about two years. Yet another disease is about to yield to patience, persistence and outright genius. Well, it wasn't to be. Um, now, the way I'm not going to go into the way that, that, that the human immunovirus works, but there's a little schematic there and um, if anyone's interested, I can go through that with them later, but that, that's um, it's a bit too complicated and will take us off where we are at the moment. <coughs> to get back to the main, main point of my talk, our Lord said, the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light, at the end of one of his parables, the parable of the unjust steward. And if ever there was a proof of that, the AIDS crisis has, has given that. And I can't help feeling that that was in the back of our Lord's mind when he said those words. AIDS should have been the final definitive proof of the disastrous consequences of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. It showed that 
these new practices that were becoming so popular and so well accepted that they've become the cultural norm not only lead to moral death through mortal sin, they also lead to physical death. And yet through an absolutely brilliant and thoroughly dishonest marketing campaign, probably the most successful campaign in history, we've reached the stage where everything has been reversed. Some people have suggested that AIDS may have been a plague sent to punish immoral behaviour. If that's true, then it's backfired very badly because it's been the greatest possible gift to these people, to the gay rights movement. I'm going to refer for the first part of this talk to this book, AIDS, The Unnecessary Epidemic, by Dr. Stanley Monteith. Dr. Monteith, uh, that's him there, was a doctor living in California at the time that the AIDS outbreak worked, uh, broke out. And he worked very, very hard to try to get HIV listed as a notifiable disease, a campaign which was eventually completely unsuccessful. But I'll just go through some of the history that he gives. In 1981, this is the time that the disease was first recognised, uh, the CDC, the Centers for Con Disease Control and Prevention in the United States, went through a series of contact tracing and were able to find how a lot of the, the AIDS it was being spread at that time, because at that time it was just beginning. There were not enormous numbers of people with the disease, and they were able to trace the contacts, and they came to two conclusions. The first was that they that almost all of these men had acquired the disease in gay bathhouses. I'm still not exactly sure what those one of those is, and I don't think I want to know. And the other one was that a very large proportion of the, of the people who got this disease, particularly in San Francisco, got it directly or indirectly from one man. This man here, uh, Gaetan Dugas, he was a Canadian airline steward, and he passed the disease on to I don't know how many people. Um, he happily confessed that he had about 250 sexual partners every year. And the doctor said, well, you're spreading this terrible disease, you've got to stop. And he said, no. And they said, what do you mean no? And he said, well, I've got it, they can get it too. And so what they did was they let him go. Now in California, under the California law, this man could have been easily jailed for doing that, for deliberately spreading a very serious fatal disease. He wasn't. Being a Canadian, he could very easily have been deported. He wasn't. He was just allowed to go on spreading the disease. Now let's look at... Um, a little imaginary scenario. I want you to imagine, um, uh, my daughter Eleanor mentioned to me a couple of days ago, um, she, she was in Tasmania recently, and she went to Port Arthur, and people were talking there about the Port Arthur Massacre, where in, I forget what year it was. 96. 96, really? Thanks. In 1996, Martin Bryant, is that his name? Mm -hmm. um, went into Port Arthur with a gun, and he shot and killed about 30 people. Now, just imagine if instead of going into... Port Arthur, he'd gone into the middle of Sydney, in the, in the, in the middle of the CBD at peak hour. And instead of taking a, a handgun, which I presume is what he had, he had a machine gun with virtually limitless ammunition. And he turned his machine gun on and just started mowing people down left, right and centre and killed hundreds and hundreds of people just throughout this whole city crowd in, in peak time. And imagine the police came up and said, um, excuse me, you're killing innocent people, you've got to stop. And he said, no, I'm going to kill, kill killing people. And he kept shooting people. And the policeman said, no, we order you to stop. He said, no, I'm going to keep killing people. And he kept killing people. And so he mounted up a couple of thousand corpses there before he finally gave up and stopped. Just imagine, I mean, it's, it's a pretty ridiculous scenario, but imagine what would happen. Imagine when this became world news that the police had basically stood by and let someone kill a couple of thousand of innocent people without trying to stop it. Imagine the number of senior police, the number of politicians whose jobs would, would be gone. It would be one of the greatest scandals in history. And yet, most of those people would have died very quick, relatively painless deaths. And yet this man, who may have killed far more people than that, and not painlessly, but an incredibly painful, demeaning, debilitating disease, was simply allowed to go free. One of the frightening things about AIDS is it has a 10-year incubation period. It starts off 
in fact, in the macrophages, they're the, the, the big cells that go around gobbling up uh, foreign particles that get into your blood. And it does that for several years, possibly for up to 10 years, before it gets out into the, the T helper cells and a variety of other cells. And when it gets into them, that's when it develops actual AIDS, when the, actual, the, the rest of the, the immune system becomes completely decimated and doesn't work anymore. And then all these cancers, which were formerly being destroyed, get to take over the body. And the infections, which were formerly harmless, become deadly infections. And people die of all sorts of things. But during that 10 years, many of those people may not even know they've got the disease. And so it was very important, as, as Dr. Monteith believed, to get a, a, an accurate test so it could be, people could be tested to find out if they had the disease. So that it could actually be found out who had it, so you could work out who was transmitting the disease and be able to control it. This has been done successfully for many other diseases. Legionnaire's disease was a classic case where the CDC used contact tracing techniques and were basically able to eliminate, so far, all outbreaks of the disease. But well, what happened in 1984 is that there was a very accurate blood test which was developed and it was going to be released. It was going to be able to find out who had the disease in the American population. But before it was released, uh, there was a legal action by gay lobbies. Um, they, they put a lawsuit out to prevent the testing of the general population with this blood test. They said it would be a violation of people's civil rights. They said it would be used to compile lists of homosexuals in order to discriminate against them, to quarantine them. These people would lose their jobs, they'd lose their house, they'd lose their insurance, they'd lose their personal relationships, they'd become depressed, they'd commit suicide. It was an outrage, it was a monstrous imposition. And they were successful, they stopped the, the test from being released. It was allowed to be used in, by the Red Cross for blood testing. Uh, the army used it on their people, and apart from that, this test has virtually only ever been used when other people have deliberately, specifically requested the use of it. As I said, Dr Monteith spent the next few years, uh, the next 10 years or so, working to try to get this, this test released into this general public, uh, and it was completely failure. <coughs> what happened was that the, these people, these activists, worked on the medical profession, they worked on the media, who were open to their ideas anyway, and in particular they worked on the politicians. And they put fear into the politicians, presumably, and through a mixture of fear and pressure and using the, the horrific nature of the AIDS disease to get public sympathy, they were able to get large quantities of, of influential people on their side, particularly the politicians. Dr James Curran, who was the, the director of the venereal disease division of the CDC, said, every time I talk about testing to control this disease, I keep getting beaten up by politicians. And ironically, within a, a matter of months, the CDC and the medical establishment, the AMA, the other medical associations, the medical journals, medical conferences, became amongst the strongest, promote, or strongest opponents of testing of HIV. They all said it was unnecessary. They said it would be create a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives. False positives mean someone gets the test and says they've got the disease when they really don't. False negative means it says you haven't got the disease when you really do. They said it will lead to homophobia and bigotry and it will lead to quarantines, etc, etc. <coughs> In fact, the army who did this testing and the Red Cross found that the actual rate of false positives and false negatives was less than one in a hundred thousand. It's one of the most accurate blood tests ever developed. And yet, through this rhetoric, through these lies, basically, saying it was going to give all these false positives and false negatives, the test was never used. <coughs> um, Dr. Monteith comments, the CDC spends millions of dollars a year determining the incidence of every imaginable disease in America and throughout the world, except HIV. This is the first epidemic in all recorded history where physicians have been told not to try to identify those who are infected. He adds, this is the first politically protected disease in history. In fact, in 1985, a law was passed in California which mandated 
that no doctor could order an HIV test without written consent from the patient, that when a test was done, no one besides the doctor and the patient could even know that the test was being done or who it was being done on, and certainly no one else was allowed to know what the results were. If the doctor let anyone know, he faced a $10,000 fine and a year in prison. In fact, one doctor was taken to court for letting his technician find out the patient's name. And he was actually being sued for $150,000. He actually was able to settle out of court for $25,000. Another doctor was lucky and he could settle for $15,000. In addition, the law said that the doctor had to counsel the patient to explain that the blood test was not totally accurate, which incidentally it doesn't have to for any other blood test, that there might be false positives and false negative test results, that taking the test might affect their ability to get health or life insurance, that if the result was accidentally released, the person might lose his house, his job, his insurance, his personal relationships, etc., etc. And finally, the doctor had to ask, are you emotionally able to cope with a positive test result and its implications for your life? The whole thing took 20 to 30 minutes and had to be done again if there was a positive result. Similar laws were passed across the United States. The whole thing was obviously designed, number one, to make doctors very reluctant to issue the tests at all, and number two, to make people extremely frightened to take the test. So basically to stop people taking the test. Uh, Dr Monteith points out some of the implications of the law. For example, he said, supposing a doctor needs to do some surgery, and he tells his nurse and his uh, assistant doctors, I want you to put a special face mask and thick gloves and extra protection on. And they'll say, why? And they say, well, we just want to. And they say, well, has this person got HIV? And if the doctor says, well, yes, then that doctor can be sued for $10,000 and put into jail. If a nurse gets a needle stick injury during the operation, then the doctor legally is not even allowed to tell her that she may have HIV. This is the implications of the law. Um, it was a brilliant strategy, and through, through this strategy they were able to, to get to the stage where they are now. very good example of the, the tactics of the, the, um, the, basically the, the AIDS strategists and the AIDS um, <coughs> activists was shown at the 1989 International AIDS Conference, which is in Montreal, Canada. There were 12,000 delegates to the conference from 106 countries and each one of them had paid $500 to get in. There was a big crowd of protesters outside as the conference was starting. And as they took their seats, suddenly a whole big group of these protesters marched into the room, marched right to the front of the room and went to the microphone, picked up the microphone and started haranguing the crowd. And they were demanding that they, that they must have confidentiality, they must have counselling, there should be no mandatory testing, there should be no quarantine. Well, that was nonsense because they already had legal legally assured confidentiality and counselling and no mandatory count testing. Nobody was trying to quarantine them. Basically, they were trying to create the image that there were all these prejudices against them which didn't exist, really. They also had some special demands. They wanted gay rights groups to be involved in all decisions concerning HIV. They wanted HIV patients to be able to migrate anywhere in the United States or overseas they wanted to. And there should be full legal representation, recognition rather, of lesbian and gay relationships. They should have free access to abortion. And there should be international sex education programs supporting of all sexual orientations. In other words, children in school should be taught homosexual propaganda. When they finished Speaking to the people, these, these protesters sat down in the VIP seats at the front, in front of all the people who'd paid $500 to get in and uh, many of whom had paid thousands of dollars in airfare as an accommodation to get to this conference. And they continued to heckle anyone who did, they disagreed with throughout the conference. And in the end, when we look back from 2009, 20 years later, didn't they get everything that they asked for? Every AIDS task force, every AIDS care group is all completely under, under domination of gay rights groups. 
and they spread the lies which have become the, the propaganda that, that we know as AIDS at the moment. The media were right on side from the beginning. There were several panel shows about HIV that were all totally stacked by people pushing the, the, the basic line. Anyone who tried to oppose the, the usual line was interrupted, contradicted and made to look a fool by the majority. Um, Dr Monteith himself was interviewed uh, for a television show and he was eagerly watching when the show was due to come on and as it was about to come on, the message came up, unfortunately due to circumstances beyond our control, the advertised show will not be able to be shown tonight and it was never shown. He also, booked, he also made a radio interview which was actually broadcast on radio and the station said they had more requests for, re for copies of that tape than any other show they ever did in their history. But they couldn't supply any of them because the tape disappeared. Um, the church was attacked when Cardinal O'Connor of New York uh, was opposed to, I don't exactly know what he said, but he was opposed to some of the, the gay propaganda. Um, his cathedral, was St Pat's, was picketed by these people, some of whom, many of whom came into the cathedral during Mass and they screamed and chanted, they handcuffed themselves to the pews, lay down in the aisles and apparently some of them even desecrated the, the Blessed Sacrament during Mass. These people talk about prejudice. Well, there was prejudice, but not that's the sort of prejudice they talk about. The chief of orthopaedic surgery at San Francisco General Hospital, a relatively young woman, recommended HIV testing and she was threatened by activists that they'd throw acid in her face if she ever said it again. When she continued to speak out, um, she had phone calls threatening to kill her and her family. Conferences were warned not to let her speak. Anyone who dared to, to, to propose testing would be called a bigot, a homophobe, they'd get death threats, they all got death threats, it was standard practice. Some of them had actual violence against them. Even the President of the United States couldn't do anything. Ronald Reagan ordered the Department of Health and Human Services to establish guidelines for testing a sample of the American population for HIV. It never happened. The Surgeon General, C. Everett Coop, flew across America to convince local authorities to ignore the President, and they did. Of course, the great lie of the whole campaign is the lie of safe sex. You may remember six years ago, Cardinal Trujillo spoke and gave some interviews and spoke about um, holes in condoms. He said that the, the latex that makes the condoms has microscopic holes in them. And all hell broke loose, and I use that term advisedly. For example, the chief scientific advisor to UNAID said, the statements are totally incorrect. Latex condoms are impermeable. They do prevent HIV transmission. <coughs> the University of California AIDS website said, there is a deliberate misinformation campaign being waged by religious groups that says that condoms have microscopic holes through which the virus and or sperm can pass. Well, it died down, but of course it was all brought back to the fore in March this year when the Holy Father was interviewed uh, on, on his arrival, I think it was, in Africa in March. And he was asked about the church's uh, campaign, well, position against condoms and against contraception, and asked, don't you think you're condemning people to death? And the Holy Father replied, this scourge cannot be resolved by distributing condoms Quite the contrary, we risk, we risk worsening the problem. Broke out again. The President of the, United, the International Aid Society called the Pope's comment irresponsible and dangerous. Uh, UNAIDS, the United Nations Population Front and the World Health Organizations released a statement saying that the male latex condom is the single most efficient available technology to reduce the sexual transmission of HIV. The New York Times said in an editorial, <coughs> he deserves no credence when he distorts scientific findings about the value of condoms in slowing the spread of AIDS virus. There is no evidence that condom use is aggravating the epidemic and considerable evidence that condoms, though no panacea, can be helpful in many circumstances. The most quoted comment was by Rebecca Hodes of the South African Treatment Action Campaign, 
who said, his opposition to condoms conveys that religious dogma is more important to him than the lives of Africans. Even The Lancet, possibly the most respected medical journal in the world, had an editorial which had this to say. Pope Benedict XVI made an outrageous and wildly inaccurate statement by saying that condoms exacerbate the problem of HIV-AIDS the Pope has publicly distorted scientific evidence to promote Catholic doctrine on this issue. Whether the Pope's error was due to ignorance or a deliberate attempt to manipulate science to support Catholic ideology is unclear. But when any influential person, be it a religious or political leader, makes a false scientific statement that could be devastating to the health of millions of people, they should retract or correct the public record. Anything less from Pope Benedict would be an immense disservice to the public and health advocates, including many thousands of Catholics who work tirelessly to try to prevent the spread of HIV-AIDS worldwide. In addition to that, uh, these things are mishandled. They crack after a while, like rubber does. You've all seen rubber crack up after a while. They deteriorate with age. They are not used properly. There are many, many chemical substances which could damage latex, including some substances which are actually um, used in, together with, with condoms in, in certain circumstances. There was even a case of a South African, uh, he was the testing manager, I think, for the South African government, and he took a huge bribe to pass a, a very large consignment of defective condoms, which were didn't come anywhere near the standards. And interestingly, the, the standards in Africa are nothing like the standards in the United States, which these people were talking about anyway. In any case, it's all academic, because the fact is, these things leak. How do we know they leak? Because even the best estimates of, of the usefulness of condoms being used accurately to control pregnancy says they are 97% effective. Now, if they're 97% effective, that means that they are 3% ineffective, which means that sperm cells can get through them. By, whether it's by holes or cracks or whatever, it's a fact. The cells get through them. Now, a sperm cell is very much larger than an HIV particle. If we have a look at the next slide, you can see a sperm cell, and underneath that, if anyone could just possibly point to that, can you all see the little HIV particle underneath that? It's a Size comparison there? Just uh, go to the next slide, I've got to see the bigger here. Right, probably see it now. The, the black dot is the HIV, and that's the sperm cell. So if that thing can get through these holes, what trouble would the little dot have? Not much, I would imagine. Um, okay, now I read a, a couple of minutes ago an editorial by the New York Times which was condemning the Holy Father. I didn't read the last little bit of that editorial, or one of the last bits of the editorial, which said, the most recent meta-analysis of the best studies concluded that condoms can reduce the transmission of the AIDS virus by 80%. This, these people, they are condemning, they are haranguing the Holy Father, and that's the best they can come up with. That condoms reduce the transmission of the AIDS virus by 80%. Uh, it's just... I mean, talking about shooting yourself in the foot. That is the best that they can come up with. Now, interestingly, uh, to get back to the Lancet editorial, there are a number of uh, comments on that, as you always get in editorials, most of which agreed with them. But there was an interesting article, an interesting letter, sent, which, which began, um, ecological and epidemiological evidence from generalised epidemics points to partner reduction as the primary behavioural factor explaining declines in HIV prevalence which we now see in several African countries. I won't read the rest of this because it's all in medical type jargon. Um, this article was written by two men, two AIDS researchers, two very prominent AIDS researchers, uh, Edward C. Green and Norman Hurst. Um, Dr. Green uh, soon after that wrote another article in the Washington Post which is a lot more accessible. He said, a cartoon in the Philadelphia Inquirer showed the Pope somewhat ghoulishly praising the throng of sick and dying Africans, saying, Blessed are the sick, for they have not used condoms. Yet in truth, current empirical evidence supports him. 
We liberals who work in the fields of HIV, AIDS and family planning take terrible professional risks if we side with the Pope on a divisive topic such as this. The condoms become a symbol of risks if we... Symbol, sorry, of risks... Um, sorry, has become a symbol of freedom and along with contraception, female emancipation. So those who question condom orthodoxy are accused of being against these causes. But in 1903, rather, 2003, Norman Hurst and Sani Chen at the University of California conducted a condom effectiveness study for the United Nations AIDS program and found no evidence of condoms working as a primary HIV prevention measure in Africa. UNAIDS quietly disowned the study. Since then, major articles in other peer-reviewed journals such as The Lancet, Science and the British Medical Journal have confirmed that, firm that condoms have not worked as a primary intervention in the population-wide epidemics of Africa. Let me quickly add that condom promotion has worked in countries such as Thailand and Cambodia where most HIV is transmitted through commercial sex. But why has it not worked in Africa? One reason is risk compensation. That is, when people think they're made safe by using condoms, at least some of the time, they actually engage in riskier sex. Well, that's only common sense. Another factor is that people seldom use condoms in steady relationships because doing so would be entire lack of trust. So what has worked in Africa? Strategies that break up these multiple and concurrent sexual networks, or in plain language, faithful mutual monogamy, or at least, part, at least reduction in numbers of partners, especially concurrent ones. Now, here he does add, don't misunderstand me, I'm not anti-condom. All people should have full access to condoms, and condoms should always be used as a backup strategy for those who will not or cannot remain faithful, sorry, cannot remain in a mutually faithful relationship. But surely it's time to start providing more evidence-based AIDS research in Africa. So here we have a man who is actually a member of the culture of death to the extent that he supports contraception, he supports, he describes himself as a liberal, supports the whole contraceptive agenda, but he's at least honest enough to admit that it doesn't work. And he's basing that on 30, more than about 35 years of, of actual evidence working in the field, in Africa, and so forth. Um, he's a medical anthropologist. He was, the, from up until recently, the director of the AIDS prevention research at the Harvard Centre for Population and Development Studies. He was on the advisory council, the presidential advisory council on HIV AIDS, and the office of AIDS research, um, and, and uh, for the institutes of health. Uh, he originally began on large condom distribution projects, and gradually, over the years, realised that what he was doing wasn't working, and that most successful AIDS reduction projects have been small local initiatives which emphasise primarily being faithful to the partner and for people abstaining for as long as possible from sexual relationships. Um, Dr Green is the author of over 350 peer-reviewed articles, articles which generally got very wide reviews, got promoted by the American Medical Journal, he was interviewed by journals and uh, television shows, radio shows, he was accepted. But when he first wrote an article questioning the effectiveness of, of condoms, he found for the first time in his life nobody would publish him. And the reason was given by peer review viewers that raising any question about condoms endangers public health. So forget the evidence, right, just stick with the program. He says, those who raise any sort of question about condom effectiveness or who suggest that reducing the number of sexual partners might help reduce HIV transmission may be accused of being part of the religious right wing, someone beyond the pale of scientific discourse. He's written this book, this rather large book, which is called Rethinking AIDS Prevention, subtitled Learning from Successes in Developing Countries. And he gives an enormous amount of evidence based on his own research and the research of hundreds of others which lead to these conclusions. He also mentions that Western AIDS experts have a phobia with the idea of abstinence. 
He quotes, uh, and, and I'm, no, he doesn't name, but he quotes a Western AIDS expert working in Uganda saying, Ugandans are the most promiscuous people in the world and they would never change their sexual behaviour. So it would be a waste of money to promote abstinence. Now the irony is when this woman said this, there were already several published uh, reports in Uganda, the country she was living and working in, which showed that abstinence programs had been enormously successful. But apparently she didn't bother to read them. Is that because of, there's a political agenda imbued into their psyche? Absolutely, there's an agenda. They, they, can't, they can't believe that anything other than what they do could be successful. Um, they can't believe that anything could be as successful as condoms. They can't believe that anything that a local group of people does on a small local level could possibly be as successful as what a huge multinational corporation or a United Nations funded organisation could be. They can't believe that these people who are fairly um, you know, not very well educated people could possibly do better than all these PhDs from the United States. There's prejudice on all those levels. And that is that's typical of, of what these people believe. Uh, he, he examines the common elements that, that explain success in AIDS prevention programs. Before he does it, he says, it's surprising that such an exercise has not been done before. Why not work out what it is that works? He said, if there were 500 water and sanitation projects that failed and a handful that were successful, wouldn't we look carefully at those that worked and see what we could learn? But when it comes to AIDS, they don't want to learn. Uh, most of his work has been in Uganda. And the dramatic case, if you look at the next slide, this shows global AIDS cases between the years of 1990 and 2007, and as you can see, there's a fairly steady increase, levelling off as the levels get really, really high. Um, we're talking about you know, more than 30 million people here. Uh, I think this is HIV. Well, no, it's, actually, it's actually AIDS cases, not just HIV infection, but actual AIDS cases. But the, 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 up until 2007, and presumably up to 2009, there is still some increase. It's increasing all the way. Now, if you look at the figures for Uganda, you notice it peaked in 1991 at approximately 21% and there's a couple of ups and downs which are possibly caused by problems with the sampling techniques which certainly are not perfect but overall from 1991, 21%, it's declined down to approximately 7% in 2000. Unfortunately I don't have figures beyond that uh, in, in, in the graph form. So while the rest of the world aids um, figures are climbing. Uganda has gone down to one third of what it was before. Now what could they possibly have done that could be so successful? Well, actually, so before I go on, uh, if you look at the next slide, this shows something even more dramatic than, than, than the two thirds result. This is the reduction in the number of young people, young unmarried people, having premarital sex. Between 1989, when there were approximately 60% of boys, uh, sorry, boys are the, the blue column on the left, having premarital sex, declined to 23%. Once again, a, a reduction to about a third. And with girls, it's gone from about 51% to about 12%. So actually to about a quarter of what it was before. The number of Ugandans having premarital sex has just absolutely devastated. And that's not the right word, is it? Um, has, has just enormously declined, and that's been associated with this decline in AIDS overall. The person most responsible for the success in Uganda is probably the Ugandan president, President Museveni, who has been a wonderful campaigner from the beginning. In 1991, he was asked to give the keynote address at the International AIDS Conference, and he shocked everybody by denouncing AIDS, by, by denouncing condoms as an AIDS prevention strategy. He has gone on to do that every, ever since then. He said, I've been emphasising a return to our time-tested cultural practices that emphasise fidelity and condemn premarital and extramarital sex. I believe that the best response to the threat of AIDS and other STDs is to reaffirm publicly and forthrightly 
the respect and responsibility every person owes to his or her neighbour. Um, and um, Dr. Green comments that the word respect in this concept, in context, usually refers to fidelity. What Uganda finally, finally adopted, as I'm sure most of you are aware, is what they call the ABC policy. Um, this was probably a compromise. I don't think it was exactly what the President had in mind. But the idea of ABC is that the first, the first emphasis should be on abstinence, as we can see there. Young people, in particular, are abstaining from sexual relationships prior to marriage or to other long-term relationships. Unfortunately, the, the uh, data doesn't tell you whether the people are actually married or not, it just tells you a number of partners that they have. Uh, can't help, that's all we've got. Uh, but primarily abstinence, premarital abstinence, and, and secondly, fidelity, the, the, the being is being faithful. I know that doesn't sound very good, but being, being faithful to your spouse, or at least single partner. And thirdly, they say C for condoms. For those who feel that they can't do those, um, well, then if you've got to use a condom, use it. But be warned, and they always warn people that condoms are not terribly successful, effective. They always warn people that condoms fail and that, that um, it's not a foolproof method by any means. Which they don't do in current campaigns all over. Which they never do anywhere apart from Uganda and a couple of other countries, that's right. Um, they've also, uh, the, the thing about Uganda, the reason why Uganda is probably the number one country is the whole campaign was led by the government particularly by the President. And the President's wife, I think, is possibly the biggest influence. She's been enormously strong um, in support of abstinence and fidelity. And, but it's all been imposed by the government. They started lots of small groups around, around the country and concentrating particularly on educators, just the ordinary teachers, and religious groups. Um, interestingly, they found that 60% um, of health facilities in Uganda, well only 40% of government run, 60% are run by private organisations, and of those, the majority are religious. 44% of them are Catholic. And a statistic that I must admit astounded me, they say that 92% of the population of Uganda attend either Anglican services or Catholic mass on a regular basis. And this is a country with a substantial Muslim population, so how they manage 92%, I don't know. But uh, there is an enormous uh, religious fidelity to particularly the Catholic and the Anglican churches. Interestingly, they found that, that this enormous decline in the, uh, the, the rate of AIDS infection uh, has worked out on a rate of approximately $1.80 per adult in Uganda per year. Uh, when, you can, when you think of the, the literally billions of dollars that are being spent on promotion of condoms and antiviral drugs and all the other things, that they, it's, it's sorry, $1.80 per person per adult per year. Admittedly, the gross national product in Uganda is only about $240 a year, but still that, that's not very big. Uh, the government also did things like, for example, that there'd been a law against the seduction and rape of minors, and that had never been really very well policed, but, but they started policing it very strongly because they realised that was another way that AIDS was being, being uh, spread. And that one, that, that the amount of money they did spend, most of it was being spent on setting up these small local groups, the educational groups, the church groups, and just funding them to give talks to small groups in villages, in towns throughout the country. Whereas in other countries, the vast majority of the money is spent on condoms or drugs, and the rest of it is spent on project vehicles, fuel and maintenance for the project vehicles, and of course paying the salaries of expensive foreign experts. Uh, and also when they use religious groups to try and promote their, their policies. They never insisted that the, the religious group promoted condoms. If the religious group wanted to promote condoms, that was up to them. If they didn't want to, well, the, the government left the decision to them. Uh, 
uh, and interesting, not only is Uganda the country with by far the greatest reduction in AIDS cases, but the lowest HIV infection rate is in a region of the, the country called Karamoja or Karamoya, I don't know how you pronounce it, which also, coincidentally, has the lowest level of condom use in the country. Uh, statistics also show that um, in the last year, the last, I think this would have been in about 2001 or 2002, 98 to 99% of women reported only one partner. In most cases, that would have been a spouse. Maybe in some cases it wasn't. Now, between... Oh, sorry, I've done that one already. Um, even USAID, which is a very, very strong promoter of, of the, the condom and drug policy, says the most important determinant of the reduction in HIV incidence in Uganda appears to be a decrease in multiple sexual partnerships, which is jargon for reduction in promiscuity. They also notice associated with this there has been a big reduction in the rates of other sexually transmitted diseases amongst women in the country. Uh, now, the, the, the influence of President Museveni has, has reached to some other countries, particularly um, uh, Abdou Diouf of Senegal and Kenneth Kaunda of Zambia have followed Uganda's lead and, and adopted many of the same policies and they've also seen some reduction in the number of AIDS cases, although certainly not as, as uh, drastic as in Uganda. Dr Green comments that, that primary behaviour change, that means going to fidelity and abstinence, seems to be the natural response to concern over or fear of HIV infection. People opt for primary behaviour change over condom use on the order of at least four or five to one everywhere, and even more where it is actively promoted. In other words, even when they're massively promoting condoms everywhere, people are still more likely to go to abstinence and fidelity, because it's more natural. It's only common sense that uh, this would be adopted more readily than condoms or medications. Yet common sense is precisely what is so often missing in promotion of any sort of innovations across cultural barriers. Fidelity and delay of that means premarital chastity are behaviours which are familiar, sustainable and compatible with prevailing social and religious norms and they incur no monetary costs or technological challenges. Indeed, sexual abstinence for fertility regulation is a tradition found throughout Africa. It's often claimed that poverty is one of the reasons why HIV infection is so high in Africa. But interestingly, the wealthiest African countries, such as Botswana, South Africa, number one, Botswana and Swaziland, have the highest rates of HIV infection. And some of the poorest countries have among the lowest rates. What about outside of Africa? Does the same thing hold outside of Africa? Well, an interesting, um, interesting thing to look at is the United Nations. Uh, if you look at this one, this is, um, I, this is actually about five years old. I got it from, from the internet about five years ago. It's not there at the moment, but it was on the UNAIDS Natural Response Brief um, on, on the internet. And they, they're talking about, well, they talked about several countries. I just selected these two, not exactly at random. First of all, Thailand. They say Thailand is known as a centre for various aspects of development in Asia. The country's experience in addressing HIV AIDS is one of the areas that many other countries refer to. There is an increasing demand on Thailand to share its experiences with other countries in Africa and Asia through study tours or similar cooperation initiatives. Whereas the Philippines has an HIV AIDS epidemic that has a huge explosion potential. Risky behaviour is a major concern. A large sex industry exists throughout the country. Casual sex is prevalent among the youth. Regular and correct use of condoms is low. Now, obviously AIDS is doing pretty well. Every other country's come to them to learn how to look after the HIV infection and what to do with it. But people come from miles around to, to see how, how, the, how the ties do it, how they, why they're so successful. 
The Philippines, on the other hand, has this major epidemic with a huge explosion potential. Now, when you look at the actual UNAIDS figures, you find something interesting. That, go from the left, that's the HIV infection rate in Thailand, the country that all the other countries come to to learn how to control it. And on the right, we have a tiny little thing down the bottom there. That's the HIV infection rate in the Philippines, which has this massive epidemic with a huge explosion potential. Um, this is kind of what we mean by lies. So why did they say huge explosive uh, increase in... Well, obviously they're, ex they're expecting it to happen, and it never did. This admittedly was written about five years ago, but, but uh, and, and there has been some increase in, in the Philippines. So um, this is a UN release, is it? This is UN, yes. Mm. But, um, yeah, nothing like what they did. Interestingly, quite a few years ago, uh, actually it was before this, it was about 2001, I think, I wrote a letter to the Sydney Morning Herald, which was published, and it was talking about the, uh, the, the difference in the rates of HIV infection in Thailand and the Philippines. The Philippines um, rate was even considerably lower then than it is now. Um, and a doctor from, I think it was Newcastle Hospital, wrote in and said, oh, this, this is not a real difference. It's because people in the Philippines don't report it as often. <laughs> the difference was even greater than that. It's just because they don't report it as often. So obviously, Filipinos are dying like flies and nobody bothers to mention it. It's unbelievable. Anyway, um, I, I was able to write a number of a few years ago to uh, a doctor, Dr. René Bouillese, uh, sorry, who has for more than 20 years been a leading uh, educator of, of people around the country in how to, what, how to respond to the HIV epidemic. And he wrote back to me and said that in 1990 we had 19, 918 cases of HIV AIDS reported, while Thailand had 20,000. The World Health Organization at that time warned that by the year 2000 we'll have an epidemic of AIDS. USAID, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Hewitt Packard Foundation, Levi Strauss Foundation, the United Nations and other agencies flooded our country with their funds for a campaign to fight against AIDS via condoms. The World Health Organization offered me six million pesos, I've got no idea how much that is, in 1995 to help them in their campaign. I turned it down. I went city to city, town to town and school to school to conduct a massive information campaign and counter the condom propaganda. Thailand, on the other hand, has been exemplary in its use of condoms. The Thais have accepted billions of free condoms from organisations such as UNAIDS, USAID and others. Understanding of HIV AIDS, strong culture and tradition, and the influence of the Catholic Church have made the difference in the Philippines. UNAIDS was so mad in the year 2001 when we failed to have an epidemic. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, as I said, the sad news is that numbers of AIDS victims are climbing in the Philippines. I believe use of condoms is very, very low, but increasing substantially. So maybe in a few years this time, a few years' time, this, this uh, difference won't be quite as great as it is now. One good, one happy sign in the United States was a few years ago, um, a couple of years ago really, un under the, um, the Bush government in particular, there was a strong promotion of abstinence education in schools and the government actually put aside quite a bit of money. It was not nothing like what was promoted, was put aside for condoms, but a substantial amount of money was put aside for abstinence education in schools. And once again, the reaction was predictable. Uh, the president of the International Papillomavirus Society um, said... Society? Pa Papillom sorry, Virus Society. I got that wrong, sorry. Papillomavirus. Papillomavirus is the virus which is spread by sexual intercourse and is responsible for cervical cancer. He said, I want to be polite, but it appalls me when I see scientific and medical studies being manipulated for a different agenda. Presumably it's okay if you manipulate them to promote condoms, but manipulate them for a different agenda, that's appalling. Scientists claim that abstinence programs are actually harmful because they ignore the scientific evidence for the 
for the um, success of condoms and they exist only to push religious and political agendas. And they said the majority of people who take abstinence pledges end up breaking them and become very promiscuous, trying to make up for lost time, but without taking proper precautions. They've reacted by producing abstinence plus programs, which pay lip service to abstinence and then promote the need for safe sex. In 2004, the Infectious Diseases Society of America held their largest ever annual meeting in Boston with 3,800 doctors, scientists and healthcare workers, including many of the world's leaders in the fight against infectious diseases. The highlight of the conference was a lecture by Dr. King Holmes, uh, Director of the University for Washington Centre for AIDS and Sexually Transmitted Diseases, which described federal government policies promoting abstinence as ideologic, misguided, frightening and harmful. And yet the only evidence he could provide was an assertion that proper and consistent condom use reduces the risk of chlamydia and gonorrhea by about 50%. And while the evidence is not yet conclusive, recent studies suggest that they provide benefit against HPV-induced cervical dysplasia, in other words, cervical cancer. Dr Holmes was also outraged that Congress wanted to label condoms as ineffective against some infections saying this would send mixed messages to young people who might question the effectiveness of condoms. He said, this is the most transparent attempt to replace science with ideology since the Scopes monkey trial. That also makes no sense. He um, was supported by the president of the society who assured members that that the society has always opposed efforts to downplay the effectiveness of condoms. We've also advocated against spending one-third of the prevention funds in, the President, in President Bush's global AIDS response effort on abstinence-only education. The same year, the Union of Concerned Scientists published a report on scientific integrity on policy-making, an investigation into the Bush administration's misuse of science in which they berated President Bush for his support for abstinence programs and for directing the CDC to raise doubts about the efficacy of condoms in, in fighting against AIDS. The report expressed horror at an article on the National Cancer Institute website which suggested a link between abortion and breast cancer and at the appointment of health officials with highly partisan political views. They didn't promote condoms. Or, or, you know, or abortion. They had a petition about the misuse of science by the Bush administration, which was endorsed by over 6,000 signatories, including 48 Nobel laureates, 62 National Medal of Science recipients, and 135 members of the National Academy of Sciences. Other groups opposing warnings on condoms included the National Cancer, Cervical Cancer Coalition, the American Academy of Pediatrics, etc., etc., etc. Uh, basically nearly all the health societies in the United States. In an astounding act of hypocrisy, Australian health officials actually blamed abstinence education on, for, the, for the US failure to control AIDS. This was um, a warning by Bill Botel, who was the former national president of the Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations, an advisor to Neil Blewett, and an architect of Australia's response to HIV AIDS in the Sydney Morning Herald in 2005. He said, the lesson is clear. If you want Australian HIV AIDS caseloads to increase tenfold, then follow America's example and try to legislate and pray HIV AIDS out of existence. How can such an obviously intelligent and highly educated professionals fail to realise that a program which persuades teenagers and young adults not to become involved in premarital sex will reduce the infection rate to those people, not by 50% or 80%, but by 100%. Nor is it fair of them to blame the abstinence programs, most of which have been running for a very short length of time, for having low success rates. After all, infection rates skyrocketed during the last three decades despite the saturation bombardment of safe sex programs, which continue to undermine abstinence education. In almost sole opposition to other professionals, 
the Physicians Consortium, a group representing about 2,000 medical practitioners, is strongly in favour of abstinence education. They produced a study which showed that the number of teenage girls who were virgins or abstaining from sexual relations increased significantly between 1991 and 95, and that the number of teenage girls becoming pregnant declined even more significantly during the same period, and that abstinence was the most significant factor in reducing teen pregnancies. A fact sheet by the Heritage Foundation listed 10 scientific studies showing that abstinence programs significantly referred to the incidence of sexual activity. And yet, a professor at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health publicly stated, there is no evidence whatsoever that abstinence education alone is effective with young people. There's not a single scientific study that demonstrates that abstinence-only programs have done anything to cut down on teen sexual activity. And yet scientists may be correct in saying that abstinence education has made little difference. How could we be so naive as to expect a few small programs will make sufficient headway against the deluge of sex education, pornography, safe sex campaigns and irreligion that has swept the world for the last 40 years, for the whole culture of death? Of course, the real answer to AIDS to sexually transmitted diseases, to abortion and to numerous other calamities, is not merely abstinence education, but education in chastity. Or more correctly, education in all the virtues, so that the beautiful virtue of chastity can be seen in its proper place, along with faith, hope and charity, humility and the other virtues, as the soul's loving response to God. In the meantime, we must all work as if everything depended on us, while never ceasing to pray, knowing that only the almighty hand of God can turn the tide in his favour and wash away the deluge of filth that has contaminated us all. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Stephen Hitchings. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit Cradio dot org dot au